ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. From some of the best elk hunters in the world. Across the canyon, pop up the other side, and the wind is right at my back and blows right into it. I cut him off and say, I'm the baddest one, not you. I love it, man. I feel like I'm super blessed to call myself an elk hunter. To beat them at their game, to get them within that bow range, convincing them that I'm one of them. you got to close that distance really quick on him. And if he's going to engage that much, that's a dead bull. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. Whether you're chasing bugles over the next ridge, sitting a stand out east, this is about passion, pursuing our dreams of field, our lifestyle, the betterment of self and community, the enlightenment that comes from those moments spent in God's creation. Through these conversations, I hope you find insight, inspiration, education, and motivation to push beyond your limits. All right. I didn't want to get too far into that. We were having a pretty good conversation and it was only about five minutes. Those usually last about 25 minutes. And then I shake my head. and I should have hit record. So I'm on with uh, Shannon Waters. How you doing? Good. How are you? Busy, busy and crazy. Selling a house, getting ready for the move. Uh, we just talked about it. Unemployed for the first time in 25 years. Feels pretty good. Liberating. <laughs> but uh, yeah. How are you? How's how's uh, life in the backcountry food realm treating you? It's pretty good right now. Um, the winter's a really interesting time, I think, for any backcountry brand of any kind or hunting brand of any kind. Um, we experience a lull, which is so great. I think a lot of business owners are like, a lull is great. How is that possible? But for me, it's the time to be creative. It's the time to launch new products. It's the time to get our ducks in a row for the busy season. So I've been reveling in this moment. Um, we're in the middle of a construction project. So without the lull, I wouldn't be able to complete those things. And I'm really happy to be doing that right now. So what's, uh, what's the name of the company? Cause what it, yeah. Well, what's the name of the company? And then we'll get into it because th this area, right. The, the, the space you sit in is very, very interesting. And there's not a lot of good players, if you will. I'm being very nice. <laughs> uh, well, I own gastronome. Um, it technically is called gastronome meals, but people either call it the gnome or gastronome. Um, and that's the name of the brand. 
and how did that how did that come to be? The name or the business? Both. Well, the name, um, I, it's gastronome is a real word. It is one word. Um, and gastronome really means a lover of food. And when I broke it down and came up with the little pun of gastro and gnome, it just made sense. Um, and the business itself came to be through backcountry eating experiences. Um, and I, my background is as a chef and when I started to venture out into the backcountry to the point where you couldn't bring fresh food and couldn't have this creative menu, which I did try to do on a lot of backcountry experiences, as soon as I got far enough away that fresh food wasn't possible, I started eating freeze-dried food. Um, and at the time, I was still a chef, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around the, the food that I was creating in restaurants and in the fine dining scene um, with the food that I was willing to eat in the outdoors. Um, there's no, there's no place more spectacular than where your feet bring you in the backcountry, and to sit down and be like, and here's what, where I'm really willing to sacrifice what I eat. <laughs> it just didn't make sense. Um, so I found that there was a pretty big hole in the market there. The, uh, <laughs> sorry to laugh, but that <laughs> it's hilarious. Right. And, and, you know, <sighs> I don't want to go too far. Um, I'm speaking to a woman. Um, <laughs> however that sounds right. But that's, that was always a joke for years. You know, you'd, you'd eat a meal and in the next, the next morning in camp, you know, the joke was, you know, Ooh, man, there was a couple bears in camp last night and I've seen it all. I've seen guys lay there and, and toss and turn because of the meal. And I, a friend of mine had his, his hand and his wrist, they swole up. And I mean, they were, a, a, a good three quarters to an inch fatter. And you're just talking like, you know, a fit 160 pound dude. And to see his, his wrist as, as big as his, uh, you know, the top of his forearm was just like, Whoa, like we're eating this stuff. Um, and it was, and just like you said, right, you're sitting there and you're enjoying everything and, and you want that comfort of that meal after a long day in the back country. And you eat that stuff and you're like, whew, you know what I mean? It's, you have to continuously tell yourself it's fuel, right? And that is a problem when you're just going, I got to eat it, it's fuel. I got to eat it, it's fuel it, into that last few bites. And you're like, oh, I can't even take it anymore. Um, so, I, oh, yeah, sorry. I mean, and that for me is impossible. Yeah. Well, oh, go being, ahead. being a chef, right? And and, and I, I want people to understand where you were a chef when you talk about fine dining, right? And and in the realm of culinary, there in my head, there's there's separation, right? There's there's a few avenues. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit and give them some background, you know, in that high end. And I don't know, I think people will appreciate it, but I don't know that they'll really appreciate it until they open up a bag and when you first look in that bag and you're like, Oh, this is this I'm looking at food. Yeah. I think that is one of the most stark differences with gastronome. When you open a bag, you're like, ah, a full noodle. That's what a noodle looks like. Um, and I just don't think that experience is offered, um, with most bags that you open up. You're usually like, Oh, powdered dusty things at the bottom. And like you said, you just have to convince yourself, I need this fuel. Don't worry about how it tastes. It's going to provide calories and all you really need is calories. I just wanted to eliminate that entire thought process. Like opening a bag of gastronome, you're like, ah, I cannot wait to eat this. This is going to be the most delicious meal 
maybe that I've ever had, but I'm in the backcountry. I no longer have to suffer. This thing was lightweight, packable, super rich in calories, super rich in nutrients. Um, and there's just no reason to sacrifice. So talk about the, the chef side. Sure. Um, so my, my culinary journey really began, I think like all good chefs as a line cook, um, and not even as a line cook, as a prep cook, peeling cases of carrots, um, really earning my space on the line. And I started at a restaurant being not paid and working my way up to the point where they agreed to pay me. So it really did start at the bottom. Um, and I, I set my sights on the best restaurants and the best chefs that I wanted to learn from. So my first restaurant experience was at the little Nell in Aspen where I stayed, um, and learned from some phenomenal people. And they gave me fantastic opportunities. I worked at Blackberry farm after that. And I ultimately went to culinary school in New York where I worked at, um, a bunch of restaurants with really fantastic chefs who had a lot to offer as far as teaching young cooks. Um, so I learned everything from pasta making to whole animal butchery to fish butchery and really spent every waking hour that there was learning how to cook and learning how to cook really well. From New York, I moved to San Francisco for a job. I stayed with that restaurant group for a long time and earned my keep and left. When I left that restaurant group, I left as the chef de cuisine of a really, really fantastic Spanish restaurant. So I've just had a lot of really great opportunities to learn with chefs who were great teachers. I mean, so I have a bag sitting here. It's an empty bag. <laughs> and it's the, uh, for one, I, I don't like pesto. Okay. I, I've, I, most pesto oh, is. Oh, you ate a pesto pasta. Yes. And I, and I intentionally did that. So most pesto to me is way too one-sided on the pesto. It's very overpowering. Um, so when I saw that, I really love everything else about that, right? Almond, the mushroom, the ragu. And I was like, you know what? That looks good. And I was like, please don't have that huge, I, th I think it's basil that that gives pesto that that overpowering, like too much basil, like, you know, even on like pizza, right? If they put too much, like, God dang it, it's too much. It's always too much. When I poured the water in and I smelt that, I was like, wow, this is, you, you can, and I'm not just, I'm not blowing smoke. So anybody listening, it's not smoke up Shannon's, but it was, it was very, very inviting. Like I was dying, waiting the 10 minutes after smelling it. I'm like, I want to eat it. I want to eat it. I want to eat it. And when I started, you know, I shake it when it's, when it's warming uh, or, or reconstituting, if you will, not that this one needs much um, rehydrating in this instance. Um, I opened that and I looked in there and there's asparagus and whole mushrooms and whole pasta. And I mean, you can, you can literally see the ingredients and it was so, it was just a different experience. And there's a few meals that I really, I, I shouldn't even say a few, a couple of meals that I really, really like in, in terms of brand. Sasquatch has been great for me. Um, they're, they're kind of my go-to. Uh, Heather's Choice has some that I like. Um, but this was just a different experience visually. And then when you're taking bites of it, and I wish I was, I wish I was 
full in depth on the mountain as I'm eating this, right, for that full on experience. And I can't wait to do that. But there was something nice about just the visual aspect of the eat. It was just, it was, so, I didn't realize how important that was. And it was so important. I realized it was so important just after spoonful after spoon or spork, sporkful after mm -hmm. sporkful, and really just enjoying the meal visually and on my palate. You know, I think there's something to say about that statement that you eat with your eyes first. Um, it really, I think it is the truth. You eat with your eyes first. And if you are looking at something that's not very inviting, you're probably not going to enjoy it as much as if your eyes invited you there first. It's funny because, you know, typical man stuff, my wife, will, she worries about plating or we go somewhere and she's like, oh, that looks beautiful. And I'm like, it all comes out the same way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but as I'm eating this, I'm, I'm understanding it, you know what I mean? In contrast to what, uh, to what I'm used to. And it's just, it was very nice to have that, that experience in the bag. Um, so how do you talk about the food a little bit? Are you, as you're coming up with recipes, are you looking at, um, you know, calories and, and you talked about uh, nutrients, things like that, as you're making these, these recipes for the backcountry? No, not at all. I, I just cook the way that I eat, which is really high fat, um, and just really delicious. I, I never even once thought, um, I wonder what, how many calories this will have, or if this will have enough protein, anything like that. I think first with flavor and fat, um, and the process. And ultimately when I did write nutrition labels, well over a year after the first round of recipes were done, um, they turned out to be really fantastic, but I think that's a, a natural way of cooking is to just start first with flavor and, start, and use a lot of fat. Like I, that is a key to flavor is using fat, um, to cook. And I just never once thought of, I wonder if this will have enough calories. I know, I know I eat a lot of calories myself. That That's interesting. And that is probably a, the game changer, right? Because there's a lot of focus on that, right? caloric consumption on the mountain, right? I'm, you know, X amount of pounds, we're going to be doing X amount of miles and X amount of calories. And then you, you start to fall down that rabbit hole and fat. I'm sorry. I, I, my head's all over with this, this is awesome. Fat's always something that we ignore. It's protein, it's carbohydrates, but in terms of your mental well-being after days on the mountain, fat's a huge part in your in your cognition and what it does and how it plays into the brain and that sustainable energy throughout the day. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think if every brand continues to start with a nutrition label and think backwards from there, like how do we maximize the caloric value of what's inside this bag? I think we'd have similar meals for forever. So I think it's a really nice and refreshing approach for people to think, what do I want to eat? How good is it going to taste? And then they check the nutrition label and they're like, Oh yeah, this is awesome. High in protein, high in calories, really low in salt. Like, yeah. And I, do, I just think that that's the way that we should be eating, but you know, I have a, I have a very biased background. I, my whole brain is focused on food all the time. So 
but yeah, well, and and I think again, that's the that's the separator there. That's the game changer in it. So, what's the process that you guys go through to to put these together outside of the recipe? Is there um, is there sourcing issues that you have, or how do you how do you approach sourcing? You know, right now there's there's pushes from all over the place to be cleaner, things like that. And then, you know, is it dehydrated? Is it freeze dried? How does that all look? Sure. Yeah. I think we're also very unique in our approach to sourcing. Um, I, I believe because of my background as a chef and my commitment to using local ingredients when I was doing that, I just didn't have another approach. When I started thinking about food manufacturing, I was actually really confused when I found out that it wasn't normal to just source local ingredients and use that for your product. I, I didn't grasp why so many people were outsourcing to like a, a place that um, I guess co-packs a bunch of ingredients together that they really never see or touch or understand where they come from. So my, I guess, um, just naivety, I didn't understand how food manufacturing works, which is great now because we still use local purveyors. Um, I work with one purveyor here in Bozeman and he helps me try my best to keep all of the food that we source as local as possible. And if we can't, of course, we can't always do that. But the number one important thing to me is that they're fresh ingredients and they're not, they don't have additives in any way. They don't have um, stabilizers in any way. Like if there's a zucchini in our meals, it's because I purchased zucchini and washed it and cleaned it and cooked it and, you know, dealt with the whole thing myself. So I think it's a very different approach to food manufacturing that I, that lends itself to a new look at backpacking meals. Um, so we do start with all fresh ingredients and all of them come from one purveyor here in Bozeman. And then we go through a process of freeze drying and we pack it all ourselves. We have a facility here in Bozeman and we do everything from start to finish under that roof. And then the process is, uh, so that you did say they freeze dry at all. Um, yep. and there's no, there's no degradation in quality from the freeze drying process, right? It's just pulling all the moisture out and then we put the hot water in it and boom, it's back. Yeah. Essentially freeze drying is great because it sort of locks everything in its place as great as it was at the moment, um, that, you know, if we, I was to eat it right now for dinner before freeze drying it, it would be extremely similar to the moment that you eat it out in the backcountry because of the freeze drying process. And now with, and I could be wrong, dehydrating, that brings out a lot of sugar, right? I, I've seen that in fruit and things like that. You know, it doesn't necessarily bring out um, any sugar or anything else. The ingredients that go into the dehydrator will be the same ones that come out for the most part. Um, it's just about how the water is removed during the process that makes dehydration and freeze drying so different. Um, dehydrating allows water to evaporate from the surfaces. So that's why you typically get those um, kind of like harder textures when you think of dehydrated food and more like leathery textures when you think of dehydrated food versus freeze drying that um, allows vapor, the the water to vaporize from the place it was. So it leaves more like holes rather than evaporating slowly out the top. So what, what other offerings? So we have the, let me see, this is, it's a mouthful. Uh, it's a good mouthful. Almond pesto and mushroom <laughs> ragu farfali. Did I say that right? Is it farfali? 
or is it far? It's far folly. Okay. Um, and then there's, there's the, uh, really good. Okay. So that's, that's actually a vegan offering. Um, vegetarian. Yes. There you go. There, that's <laughs> don't get me going <laughs> don't get me going either i'm i'm really happy we were able to make a really delicious vegetarian item it's not how i choose to eat uh the spice spicy italian sausage rigatoni is nailed it it's you can you could eat that at home like you can literally cook that, let it sit for 10 to 12 minutes and you can sit down at the table and enjoy that and be none the wiser that it came out of a Mylar bag. Um, that, I mean, I do it all the time. That says a whole heck of a lot to me, right? The, the fact that you're able to do that with it. And, and it was, I'm blowing smoke again. It sounds like it was, it was more than enjoyable. Um, just everything about the sausage, the noodles were, were perfect. And, and I, yeah, I'm gonna have people mad at me. I've, I've just never, I've never had a noodle come out of a Mylar package. And it was like, dang, you know, like al, it's al dente. <laughs> it was perfect. And it was just like, wow, this is, this is a different eating experience. Um, and it was just really, really cool. I'm excited for people to put this in their packs and, uh, yeah. and check it out on the mountain. I think, one of the most important things to me is the moment when someone goes to eat it and ensuring that that moment is as good as I imagined it to be. And for, I mean, just the noodle alone took six months to nail. And I feel really great about the fact that people get into the backcountry and they open this bag and they're like, that's a noodle. And it rehydrates like, like you said, a perfect al dente noodle. And that wasn't by accident. That was really intentional to ensure that um, the meal that you enjoy is just so damn good. Again, right. When you, when you look in the bag and you're seeing whole mushrooms and you're seeing, you know, actual bits of sausage, um, this noodle that you're, that you're going, okay, when am I going to get that hard, that hard bite? Right. Um, it didn't, it didn't rehydrate, reconstitute, um, correctly, but it just, yeah, it's, it's an awesome experience. So I, I think I was asking you what, what the other offerings were since we got through the couple that I was able to try out. Oh, sure. Um, we have five lunch and dinner options as we speak right now, which are a Thai green curry, a yogurt braised chicken and a spicy pozole. And that's our current lineup. We're in the process of launching two breakfasts and a dessert, which are all depending on when you launch this very near our bison chorizo hash launches in three weeks are, Caramelized wait, wait, banana. Say, say that again. <laughs> bison chorizo hash. Yes, oh bison chorizo hash. Oh, writing that sucker down. Yeah, people are really excited about it, and that was a super fun recipe to work on, and it turned out to be like an epic way to start um, a morning in the backcountry. Um, so yeah, the bison chorizo hash, the caramelized banana and butternut squash oat bowl. And a peach cobbler, but we got to wait for peaches to come into season. So that one will be a little bit. So let's talk about the, let's talk about the banana one, right? Because that is, you're talking about, and it's a little different now, but you're talking about dudes that 
want to see sausage, right? Or, you know, bison or beef. And then when you, and you'll have to say it again, forgive me, um, or chick, you know, the, the, the yogurt chicken, right? How, how do you, how do you cross that line, right? When you're saying, Hey, Hey, Mr. Hunter, Mr. You know, bravado, Mr. Macho guy, I'm going to kick you and throw you on your butt, but you know, you gotta, you gotta put that down and taste this real <laughs> food in the back country. How, how do you, how do you meander through that? Right. As, as you're going through and you're, you're describing the, the meals through their ingredients. Some people might go, I don't know what the heck that is. I mean, fl flavor is universal, right? You like, you couldn't ask a single person, be like, do you like bad food or good food? And they'd be like, good food. Like no one's going to say, I, I really like something that tastes bad. Um, I think good flavor is universal and it's not a very hard sell, even if it's not, let's say on brand for a hunter to be like, Oh yeah, banana and butternut squash opal. When somebody eats it or begins to trust our, our brand, um, they just don't have a problem saying like, yeah, I eat a banana and butternut squash opal. Like, like you know, I, I personally don't, don't see a boundary between um, food and the people who eat it. I think flavor is on brand for everyone. I agree. But uh, again, you're dealing with, you're dealing with dudes that have been 20, 25 years, you know what I mean? And they're, and they're used to a thing. And again, bravado and macho is a lot of what we see. Um, that that part of it is funny to experience and watch for me um, because dudes will dudes will consume a mountain house or a, you know, legit MRE because that's the that's what they've always done. That's what they <laughs> and it's like, oh, God, dude, like, you know, you go you go put your tent over there 50 yards <laughs> away after those. Um so yeah, that that part of it is uh I think that's going to be interesting to see people's light come on, right? And we're creatures of habit in in our demographic. Um but I, I think it's going to be a neat thing for them to for them to open up one of these bags. You know, I think there's space for for all the brands that do currently exist and will exist um for people for with different needs. You know, if somebody likes an MRE, which there are people who like MREs, um, no shame in that game. And especially for mountain house is probably the longest standing freeze dried food brand. And they're obviously meeting a really good market and answering a need. So no shame in that game either. I think probably different, um, different people with different needs will find the brand they align with most. And for people who are like flavors, flavor and feeling good are my thing then flavor and feeling good are your, are your thing. You'll probably end up with gastronome. Um, but I think there's space for everybody in the freeze dried food world or the dehydrated food world for, um, every sentiment. Mm -hmm. So the breakfast, the, there's, there's a hole in the breakfast game big time. Um, there are a few, they're, they're very similar across, you know, what the brands that are, that are doing it. Um, so I'm super happy to see, that you guys have breakfast as well, you know, you exploring the website when we had initially talked and I found you guys, um, that was one of the things that was like, where, you know, where that's the first thing I look at now is like, where's the breakfast, what are the breakfast offerings? 
um are those are now are those um well the bison chorizo hash that apparently is is a a better warm option um but is the oat bowl is that a cold option as well no they're both hot both hot um, and i agree the breakfast space was severely lacking and this is not a call to any certain brand but like the granola with the freeze-dried blueberries and the powdered milk like none of us want to eat that um, we've all been doing that because it's the only thing any brand for that matter that I've seen has really, um, honed in, on, honed in on. Um, and I just thought this has to be better. We have to do something better there. There has to be the possibility of making something more thoughtful. So a ton of care and work went into creating breakfast, like the bison chorizo hash and the opal that stand out. They're like, they're stellar options for the backcountry, And I just think it was time. Um, so let's, let's talk about where folks can find gastronome and if they have questions, is there an avenue for them to, um, get those questions answered? Yeah. Our website's the easiest way to grab meals and, um, I'm super easily reachable. There's only three of us who work at gastronome. And if you shoot us an email to the contact listed on the website or give us a call, you'll reach one of us three. And, um, it's generally me. Okay. And then just so everybody, so we, we talked about the, uh, about the sausage rigatone and the, uh, and the ragu farfall. Calorically, um, we're looking at 750 plus or minus to 850 calories in a single pouch. So it's, it's a good single serving on the mountain, um, in terms of, you know, recovering from that, that long arduous day. Um, and then looking at it, you know, some of the lowest numbers in terms of, uh, in terms of salt that I've seen. And, and that one stands out protein, uh, 35 and 29 grams, um, zero added sugars. So that's, that's a huge one. Um, but just definitely, definitely delicious, um, in both of those bags. So I guess not as important as gastronome, but, but super exciting for me to hear is that you are, um, I hate using it. How do I say that without saying the term? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so about what you're going to say. <laughs> um, but you, you've recently started hunting, right? That's, that's a new endeavor, um, for you. And I'd love to hear about that, right. And, and how that came about, um, and what you've learned, uh, about yourself and being, involved in nature and not a spectator, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the term you're, you're hunting down will also avoid it, but I do hunt. And, um, that started two seasons ago. I mean, I guess as a kid, I had always like shot marshmallows in the duck pond and gone out with my dad and my brother bird hunting a few times, but nothing, um, in my adult life, I, I guess I was so ingrained in my career and learning about food that I kind of missed the outdoors. When I did start engaging with the outdoors again, it was a lot of river stuff and pack rafting. And, um, I never thought about hunting for my food, which seems like a big disconnect for a chef. Um, and my dad and my brother invited me along on a trip with them for blacktail in Oregon. And, I just thought, what an awesome way I get, I get to spend time with my brother and my dad. Absolutely. I don't even know what this entails, but I'm going to go. And 
I asked Matthew who works for me, if he would help me sight in my rifle that my dad had, um, given me and he did. And I had such a blast shooting, like just fell in love with it immediately and went on this blacktail hunt with them and was successful and very emotional. I could put the pieces together that this animal was going to feed me, but extremely emotional. It was the first time I had truly taken an animal's life. And, um, I think that process sank in when I started to cook with it and immediately realized, I don't want to think about me another way. I want to feel this connected to the food that I'm cooking I want it to be emotional when I'm cooking dinner. I want to feel like I owe this piece of meat something um, and that it was hard and that it was painful and that this animal lived a life that I partially understood because I was out there with it. So I, I very quickly fell in love with it. I also killed another deer here in Montana that season. I went out for spring bear, had a ridiculously great time, um, but didn't end up with a bear at the end of the season, but a bear I became obsessed with. So that season's coming up and I'm really excited about that. And this last season just had an awesome time, um, really successful to the point where I had to buy a second freezer from the, the, I had bought a freezer this last season, had to buy another one. Um, and now I'm storing stuff at Matthew who works for me, his place. Cause I have so much me. I just, I really went for it this season. I had a great time. Nothing wrong with it. Um, you know, what's interesting to me and I, and, and I've had the conversation a few times, um, recently and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, this, this opposition to hunting and how people view hunting and, and it's, I think this, you're the, the right person to ask the question, but I always, my, my pondering is always, you know, if you're going to the store and you're buying, you know, you buy a, a pack of patties, right? I mean, you could buy a, a bone in ribeye. And if you're throwing that on the grill and it hits the ground, most people are going to either hand it to the dog um, or throw it away. There's a ton of waste and we don't do that with wild game. If I drop a tenderloin or even ground, right? If I drop ground, I'm looking around to make sure nobody's looking. I kick up the fire notch, wipe it off. And it's like, I'm not wasting this, but there's a level. And you said it, there's a level of, of respect that increases when you have your hand in the life and death of that animal that in my, my opinion, I don't want everyone to hunt because I like the woods where they <laughs> are, but I, I think it's something that we're lacking as a society, right? That respect for our food. Uh, it's like, you know, going in the back and you have your garden, you grow a zucchini. It's the best zucchini you ever had. Or if you're growing beef steaks or, or whatever it is, like we were, the wife and I had our garden, we had our chickens and, and the kale was the best red Russian kale. It was the best red Russian kale that I had ever had. Um, and kale is kind of one of those off-putting, greens right it's usually very strong um but it was delicious and i think that was because you know that that going back to hunting and, and killing that animal and being able to harvest that meat from the bone there's just this level of respect you have when you have your hand in it did you did you find a difference in yourself as a chef going through that and did you have a conflict of being a chef and not realizing this earlier um, that's a good question. 
I, I feel like I used to believe I was very connected to my food sources, especially when I was cooking for restaurants, I would go to great lengths to make sure I knew the farmer or the rancher, um, who were raising these animals. And I would always practice whole animal butchery. So I believed that I was pretty connected to the animal. Um, and now it is such a different understanding of what a connection to the animal is. So I don't feel bad about not understanding it earlier. I feel very grateful that now I'm able to cook with the meat that I harvest with my hands. Um, it's, it is such a privilege and, you know, if everybody hunted, what a different world we'd live in as far as like sustainable food growth, but, um, that's neither here nor there. I'm, I'm grateful to be someone who puts me in my freezer without going to the grocery store. Yeah. That it, it's, it's really, it really is next level. And it, and there's something that we learn about ourselves in the process. Um, and it's just a phenomenal, a phenomenal thing. And I think, well, part of that is, is part of the experience, right? Because it, it is so difficult to do what we do, even with a rifle, um, you know, with a firearm, you know, people say, oh, it's, you know, it's easier, this or that, but it, it really isn't, you know, you, you're looking at, you know, a few opportunities and, um, your prowess in the woods in terms of woodsmanship, uh, and proficiency with that weapon play into that a lot. But it is, uh, again, I don't want everybody in the woods, but it's something, it's <laughs> something just beautiful, right? The dance we play with the animal and nature and, and just pitting ourselves against that is, is just a phenomenal experience. And then to cook that and share it. That's one of the things that I think I enjoy the most. I'm, I'm no chef. Like I throw it on the grill. Um, and that's about the extent of my culinary and I know how to cut it, <laughs> but it is, uh, the sharing. Yeah. The sharing in it is, uh, is just a beautiful thing. And I think that's a, a good point too. You know, if you go to a grocery store and you pick up like one of those big super packs of meat, you don't then start driving around to your friend's house and say like, Hey, here's this, you know, like chicken thigh enjoy. But as soon as I'm done butchering, an animal, I'm like, okay, who would love this cut? And, you know, I made all this elk sausage, who would love some elk sausage? And I start driving around and dropping pieces of meat off at people's houses or inviting people over for dinner. Totally different experience than store-bought food because suddenly like you just want to share the story in that moment with people that you care about or um, really love food for no other reason than you know that you harvested it yourself. Have you, have you, so you said New York and Frisco and I know what Frisco is. I don't so much know what you, New York is outside of what I see in here. I'm in LA basin currently. Um, did you find any resistance or did you, you know, have any opposition in terms of, you know, friends or anything, um, with you taking hunting on? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, in general, I just don't think that people assume that I hunt and they look at me and make assumptions or, um, make assumptions about, you know, my, my previous culinary experiences, like whatever people make assumptions about me. And, uh, I think on both sides, there's a little bit of, um, questioning <laughs> and for sure coming from, um, more 
liberal cities, let's say, killing an animal with your bare hands and like posting a picture of you and a dead animal and a rifle on your social media get some excitement going. (laughs) I I don't think I want to go too far into that. Um, But I was not surprised to see the amount of people that had things to say about that. And at the same time, super, super comfortable with my stance on it. Um, You know, I, I know how I feel about all guns. I know how I feel about hunting and I know how I feel about everything else. Um, I, I exist in a middle ground and, um, I'm, yeah, I get, I get interesting stuff from both sides. You know, so that, that's interesting as a new hunter, right. And, and I mean, shoot some, some of us that have done it forever, especially here, you know, in, in this beautiful state. Um, and I say that honestly and jokingly, um, at the same time, but, um, we tend to tiptoe around, right? When we are, when we are around that, that call it the more liberal side, right? Or people that are in opposition to that. And we don't, we don't take the time to tell the story, right? As hunters for years, all I, you know, oh, I feel the freeze, just how I feed my family, blah, blah, blah. And it's always these really weak arguments just to kind of cut and dry, you know, the conversation, just leave it alone, avoid it is, is what I really think we're trying to do. But as a new hunter, you have an opportunity now more than ever, I think, to explain the power in hunting and explain the transformation as a person that we go through when we experience this. And it's not just the first time or the second time, you know, you, you kill 20 animals and that experience and that emotion and that appreciation and respect and admiration, it's just this repeat cycle you know, as we chase, um, how have you used the opportunity with the comments and things like that to maybe open people's mind to it or explain, um, why you do it and what kind of response have you gotten to that? Um, you know, there is certainly a balance between, you know, the towing the line thing, I just don't do, I just don't believe in towing the line. I don't think like you can believe something wholeheartedly and tow the line about it. Um, like I, I like guns. I like hunting. I'm not going to pretend that that's not true so that some people are comfortable. Um, and I, I don't know. I, there's a lot going on there because I recently took up instruction with the FWP so that I could be a hunter's ed instructor because I feel so passionate about passing this very new skill set on to the next generation um, and doing it in a way that involves ethics and um, showing people that this idea that some people have of hunting just like really doesn't actually represent the hunting community at all. Um, I've, I've never found a more ethical group of people who hold themselves to the, like the most ridiculous standards when no one is watching. Um, and I just want to, I want to carry that forward. I, I don't think I can tow that line. I think I have to be wholeheartedly in that position. Um, and not avoid the conversation and always have that conversation with people. There will be those people that you just totally lose. And, um, that's good by me for sure. Like I'm happy to let those people go on their path. Um, 
I, you know, I think there's a little bit of like a fuck them mentality. Like if, if you can't translate the message, um, through your actions and, and through the goodness that you see in something, well, fuck them. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We can end the podcast now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just an interesting thing. Right. And, and I know a lot of new hunters don't know how to, they haven't had, they haven't experienced it a, a long enough time, I think is their take and don't know how to get through to people. Um, and then a lot of that comes from no mentorship in that realm and not understanding that there's this opposition. And what's curious What's curious to me, okay, so you you start this company, and I had this, I had this conversation with Heather Kelly um, a couple weeks ago. You you start a company, and you know that there's opposition, and your willingness to still to still stand by, and this goes back to your your fuck them there, um, and still stand by and say, hey, I'm I'm going to produce meals for the backcountry, and if that means hunters, I'm okay with that. There's a lot of companies that don't even want to associate themselves with hunting or anyone, you know, they won't post it on their social. They won't say they support us. How does that look in terms of your business model and putting that out there? Is that something that you've thought about that you, you know, are, are for the lack of a better word, maybe slightly fearful of, cause it can, it can possibly hinder your growth or. Uh, the short answer is no, I'm not worried about it. Um, the longer answer is that, you know, my, I separate myself from my business quite a bit. My personal beliefs and feelings are not that of gastronomes, um, it really in any way, like I share a lot of thoughts in my personal life and my personal beliefs that just don't, you know, they're not the same of a business. That being said, I mean, I can't imagine excluding hunters because I'm worried about the way that it would look. Like, I just can't imagine that thought. Um, and I feel the same way about like climbers. Why would I want to exclude people? Because some people have beliefs about it that may be founded and may not be founded. It, you know, it's when it comes back down to it, it's all about flavor and who wants it to me, that's not like a certain subsection of people. And I don't believe that some people should be shown eating it and some shouldn't because one's too polarizing. Like, I don't know, in my experience, I eat the most meals hunting when I'm out there in the back country. That's when I'm enjoying the meals the most. And it's usually when I'm the farthest away from civilization, um, if I can recall in the most recent years. So to exclude a group that I know uses it and loves the meals and really cares about food in the same way that I do. Just thinking back about our conversation about harvesting an animal, like, no, I would, I can't imagine ever excluding them for like the way that it appears to other people. Yeah, and I mean, that's an interesting, an interesting realm, right? Because especially in the outdoors, we're sharing a space. Now, however we choose to use that space, that's, that's, you know, totally an individual thing. Um, but hunters get so much opposition from the, from the people that we're sharing it with. We'll, we can drive by or, or walk by a climber or a fly fisherman or just a, you know, average hiker. Um, and, and at times you get the looks and the, you know, I've, I've had it about all of it 
here. I mean, I, <laughs> we, we were up about, when was that? It was about five or six years ago. And we're actually coming off of our hunting area and we have to walk through a kind of heavily used trail. And there was a couple of does in this field. And these people just, just literally just wanted to kill us. I mean, that's, that was the vibe, right? F you. Ah. I mean, just screaming and yelling. It was, it was the women. And it was just like, Oh my God. And I, I, I want to be as unconfrontational as I can in those situations, right? You have a firearm, um, you know, you're, especially in this area, you're the bad guy already. And there was a couple guys with the four women that were just pissed that we were hunting. We didn't have anything. They were just pissed. And, it, and I tried to explain it. They didn't want to hear it. And we walked away and they followed us. And it was just like, this is unbelievable. And there's this doe behind the bush. And I looked at my buddy and I go, dude, if that doe steps out, I'm shooting her just to piss these people off even more. <laughs> <laughs> and you shouldn't do stuff like that. And I told lady, see that deer? She says, yes. And I said, if it comes out, I'm shooting it. And that's what got them to leave after this. I mean, this is literally about 10 minutes of just, you know, F you and the whole nine. Um, and I was proud of my buddy because he's he's a hothead. He's hotter than me. And uh, he just kind of was like, dude, let's just go, you know, but the following and I don't know, my, I digress. My point is we share the same space. And I agree with you that we shouldn't we shouldn't have to segregate any of us in that space. Right. There's enough there's enough land. There's enough footprint for us to all enjoy it. So I for whatever it's worth, I commend your stance on it. And it's always impressive to me when, when companies are sharing the space and don't shy away from supporting hunters. And there's, there's companies that, you know, we support and then we come to find out they don't support us. And it's always, in my opinion, it's always a little heartbreak in that. Um, it's just so disappointing, especially for the impact that hunters have on conservation and our public lands and access and things like that. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I feel really similarly, like there's space for everybody, especially in the outdoors. Um, and I think to toss judgment in any direction, that one use of the outdoors, um, should be more worthy than the others. Like if you, if you like climbing rocks, climb rocks, if you like hunting hunt, if you want to go pack rafting, that's great. Like this is, yeah, this is all of our spaces. Um, we should use it how we love it most. And I think part of what's helpful is that I do all of the things like I climb, I pack raft, I hunt, I don't even, I ski, like there's, there's nothing that I don't enjoy about the outdoors that I don't do. So I think for me, it's very relatable to showcase everything the outdoors has to offer and really not pinpoint the bad in them. I just don't, I don't even see it. Um, how often do you get asked about the gnome and where that came from? I mean, you told me that, you know, it's one word lover of food. Um, and it's a play on that, but how often do you get asked why the hell a gnome? <laughs> um, I don't know. N never. No, I, <laughs> I have a, my next door neighbor, uh, bless his heart. He's a, he's a sweet, he's a sweet old timer, but that's uh I've called him the gnome for years. He looks like a yard gnome. It's funny. <laughs> Love you, Charlie. Um, <laughs> but you guys have kind of a cool thing going too with that gnome, right? As you get, you get folks sending you guys gnomes and different, uh, different, uh, sculptures and whatnot of them. We do. We get a lot of gnomes. We get a lot of gnomes. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I, you know, 
trolling. I was, uh, I was like, okay, that's pretty enjoyable. That has to be pretty cool, especially as a new company, <laughs> right? When people are responding and things like that, that it means a lot, I'd imagine, right? When you get those and, you know, I don't know, I don't know because I haven't received 50 gnomes, but <laughs> has to be a, a, a good thing when you, when your, uh, your customers are partaking in that way. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, in general, like our Bozeman community is super, super, um, supportive of our business and our mission. And we have a retail shop that people come into often. So I think people just like to be, um, supportive of it. And they're always bringing stuff in always like crazy gnomes, scary gnomes, all sorts of gnomes. And yeah, if I could stop people from bringing gnomes, but get them to continue to come in and say hi, I would, but, um, I usually get a gnome and a hi. <laughs> so, okay. I, and, and hopefully I don't offend you here. So packability, right. Is a big thing. If you're doing, you know, 15 last year, I did 23, 24 days on the mountain in September. So talk about the packability and that was the, and I'm just being honest, so forgive me. Um, but that was one of the only things that I, that I saw when, when I got the meals and I'm like, okay, the only downside to this whole ingredient thing is the volume that the bag would take up, um, in a pack. So how does that look for you? Say you're doing 10 days on the mountain. Um, you know, how does that look with the rest of your gear? Um, and, and is that something that you guys have thought about? Yeah, for sure. Um, and when creating the meals, the number one thing that I wanted to cut down when I thought about the final product, um, was the bag size. So once we solved that and got it into pretty small bags, then it was like, okay, these are still pretty big. Granted, they're the same weight as everything else that like full food product that we've referred to, like, this is a whole noodle. This is a whole mushroom, um, just takes up a little bit more space. And we've had people ask like, Hey, what's the best way to pack these down? Like rip them open, scrunch them up, reseal them, um, and make them a little bit smaller if you're hurting on space. Um, in general, the weight doesn't make a difference because it's the same weight as uh, most other brands. Um, but the size, yes, rip them open, squish out the air, um, and reseal them is a great way to do it. But in general, like I'm never to the point where my pack is like bursting at the seams. I'm a pretty good packer and I have a pretty dialed system. Um, and my food bag is pretty tight. So I don't know if people run into issues where they have to start sacrificing basic size rather than weight. I'd recommend like squeezing the air out and resealing them. Um, but what you gain in that, um, the size of the food is like that real food moment when you open the bag, which I'm super willing to sacrifice. Yeah. For me, I was just, you know, and I and just bringing it up cause I know that it'll come up in, in people packing and, and, and folks trying to be more efficient, um, in, in pack volume and things like that. For me, it was like, okay, I'll just use a vacuum seal, right? I can use a longer vacuum seal bag, seal it back up. Um, and then maybe take a couple that are in the mylar so I can, I can cook them, uh, that way. Um, but I, I was glad you said, let the air out. Do not, do not, you do not crunch and squish and press. You you don't want to break up the noodles <laughs> and the ingredient because it is super <laughs> nice to open that bag and look in there and go, wow, these are bow ties in this thing, like legitimate yeah. bow ties in this thing, not bits and pieces. 
Yeah, it's a bit of a give and take there. Like if you want to sacrifice the space to have like the the real good food, or if you really want, you know, those like slimline kind of like envelope style meals. Um, again, I think there's space for both. It just depends on what you as the person want. Cool. Well, I appreciate the time. It was awesome. You know, we, we had a conversation. It seems like it's been a couple of weeks. You've been through, going through my house sale and my, and my moving with me a little bit, <laughs> just in our, just in our talks, um, going back and forth, but it was super cool to connect and, and, I'm looking forward to, you know, watching the, uh, the growth of gastronome and then running the meals, you know, on the mountain in my adventures. Um, so drop them with the, uh, dot com and where they can find you guys on social, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. We're at gastronome meals on Instagram. We don't have a Facebook or a TikTok or any of the things that the kids are doing these days, just Instagram. Um, and you can find our website at gastronome and, and gnome is G N O M E folks. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> be like, I'll get DMS. Hey, where, where, what was that? <laughs> I'm putting it in. Yeah. Work and I appreciate yeah. the time. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for chatting. Thank you. 